the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. 602 is the number, and that's all the math you need to know. I was driving back from Levine today. I was visiting the Dan's Eyes and Dairy. I'll tell you more about that shortly. Maybe you've seen their milk or flavored milks in glass bottles. I just love that stuff. Old school. And would it surprise you in an old school business, a family business, that you get the sense everyone there shares your values? Old school as well. Reminds me of Captain America and the Avengers. How'd that script go? Captain America says to Phil Coulson, wants to put his old uniform, put his old, have Captain America put his old uniform on. Captain America says, the uniform? Aren't the stars and stripes a little old fashioned? And Phil Coulson says, with everything that's happening and the things that are about to come to light, people might just need a little old-fashioned. Everything about that dialogue grabbed me when I saw that movie in a theater some years ago. It's actually more poignant now, isn't it? I was thinking about this in the context of a discussion over the response to COVID last year with a friend, Steve, our resident Bob Dylan fan. I was talking to him about why and how this country could go so quickly from let's roll to let's roll up in a ball and hide under our beds. I'd pointed out I'd recently learned of the Hong Kong flu of 1968 that killed 100,000 Americans. That in a population then of 200 million. I'd never heard of the Hong Kong flu ever until I read a radio transcript about it from Ronald Reagan. I asked my friend Steve his memory of it and why we're treating this with so much more fear, panic and fright. And he said, We were a different country then. We were made of stronger stuff then. Yes, we were. The height of Vietnam and Richard Nixon back then had Richard Nixon winning winning 32 states in 1968 compared to Hubert Humphrey's 13 states. Recall George Wallace was in that race and took some too. Then Vietnam gets worse and Nixon wins a landslide, taking 49 states. In my drive back from Levine, I was talking to a friend who said, you know, Nixon is just known for being a liar from Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. I never thought about it exactly that way. But, yeah, that's the power of the media. Sure, Nixon didn't help himself. But do people remember what specifically Nixon did wrong? Can anyone tell me? It wasn't planning the Watergate break-in. Peggy Noonan once put it well. Bill Clinton lied under oath unto the American people and enlisted his staff to lie in order to protect him. Richard Nixon lied to protect his staff, though never under oath. Lies then were enough to rid the world of Richard Nixon. Now we don't even recognize them anymore. Jen Psaki earlier this week said Donald Trump told people to put bleach in themselves to cure COVID. He never did say that. But how many people think he did? Probably the same number of people who think he praised white supremacists and called them good people. So in a weird way, a fake history starts to settle in and the real history dissolves, gets disappeared and gets covered over with what the media wants. 
honest to goodness, this is why I asked a friend the other night why she was watching network news and she said to get the news. <laughs> Too many people actually think that's a good or right answer to that question. But my point is there were things we once would tolerate and there were things we once would not tolerate in our leaders. Bacha Unger Sargon, who will join us later today, writes that the lies the Cuomos told, lies that actually led to deaths that were then attempted to be covered up, didn't bring them down. Sexual harassment did. And that should have. But those revelations came much later after we already knew the Cuomos were covering up their COVID misdeeds and trying to laugh about it on CNN, complete with theater props. Here's how she put it. One can both deplore sexual misconduct and still note that a society that ranks it a worse sin than sending the most vulnerable to their deaths and covering it up is in some way deeply sick. Seniors and the developmentally disabled often have no one to advocate for them. They rely on the state and the press to do so. Here we saw the opposite, not just a governor's hastening their demise and his celebrity brother ignoring their plight, but a larger media climate in which workplace sexual misconduct outranks sending seniors to their deaths and lying about it over and over. You can learn a lot about a society by how it treats its most vulnerable, but you can learn perhaps even more by where it places its outrage. And the full force of our outrage in the Brothers Cuomo case was reserved for sexual misconduct. Why? What is it about us that makes it so easy to empathize with the devastating effects of being harassed at work and sexually harassed at work and so hard to empathize with a developmentally disabled person sent back to a place where infections spread like wildfire? Why is it so easy for us to get enraged by someone digging up dirt on a sexual harassment accuser, but so hard for us to get enraged at a husband testing positive for COVID at a hospital, then sent back to a group home to infect his wife? And watch her die. I wish I knew. But one thing I do know, the brothers Cuomo were brought down for the wrong thing. What do we venerate now? What do we denigrate? I like how Dr. Bennett put it some years ago. These issues don't lend themselves to quantitative analyses. What we're talking about is the moral, spiritual and aesthetic character and habits of a society. What the ancient Greeks referred to as ethos. And here, too, we are facing serious problems. For there is a coarseness, a callousness, a cynicism, a banality, and a, and a vulgarity to our time. There are just too many signs of decivilization, that is, civilization gone rotten. And the worst of it has to do with our children. Apart from the numbers and the specific facts, there is the ongoing chronic crime against children, the crime of making them old before their time, the crime of telling them we fear them so much they must take shots for a disease that will not will not harm them, at least not as much as, say, the risk of drowning in the backyard swimming pool, or mask them outside of Halloween. Remember what I've been saying about the Roman myth of Saturn. He ate his children. Why? Because he was afraid of them. Or, as Hannah Arendt put it, have we now come to the point where it is the children who are being asked to change or improve the world? And do we intend to have our political battles fought out in the schoolyards? We live in a culture which at times seems almost dedicated to the corruption of the young, to assuring the loss of their innocence before their time. And my worry is that people are not unsettled enough about it. I don't think we are angry enough. We've become inured to the cultural rot that is setting in. We are getting used to it, even though it is not a good thing to get used to. 
People are experiencing atrocity overload, losing their capacity for shock, disgust and outrage. Chicago is on track to reach 600 homicides this year. We can do other cities, too. Los Angeles had a record homicide last year and is looking to beat it, surpass it this year. Twelve major cities hit all-time homicide records, homicide records this year. As far as I can tell, it barely causes a stir. Except there is a stir from at least close to half this country. Release criminals, defund the police, and reimagine everything. But when you reimagine everything that has worked and does work, short of reaching a utopia, which is by definition impossible, you are living in dreamland or Plato's cave. Our task is to enlighten that dark cave. Otherwise, we will soon be getting too used to the modern fashion of not thinking and not thinking seriously about the most serious things right now. Final note, on my drive from Levine, we saw four or five car, uh, a four or five car accident. On the 51, clearly someone didn't break in time. My message, driving this time of year and on everything, slow down. Everyone slow down. There are no lights on the freeway, but consider the import of yellow lights. And instead of thinking that means speed up to keep the effect of green, maybe slow down to be worried about the red. And that goes for our policies and politics, too, doesn't it? Let's not all rush to new things just because they are new. New is not a synonym for good any more than old is. And old is not a synonym for bad any more than new is. And right now, just looking at everything that's happening and the things that are about to come to light, we might just say people might just need a little old-fashioned right now. A lot more to say about all these things and a lot of great guests coming for you. 602-508-0960. I'm Seth Leapson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. I got a lot here, um, and I'm not sure if I should go into crime or well let me start this way because i think it's 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 a moral crime and then we'll get into some of the physical crime that 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 people are beginning just beginning to get their hands around um I, someone passed me this story gosh i wish i remembered who but the u.s surgeon general vivek murthy um yesterday issued a public health advisory on the mental health issues, he said, youth are facing from the harsh lockdowns and other protocols put in place during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, he said it would be, quote, it would be a tragedy if we beat back one public health crisis only to now allow another to grow in its place. Mental health challenges in children, adolescents and young adults are real and they are widespread. But most importantly, they are treatable and often preventable. You bet. You bet. And uh, as with uh, Abraham Lincoln, I believe that you stand with anyone who stands right when they're right. and You depart from them when they're wrong. Except this isn't the first time a public health official from on high with Senate confirmation said these things. It was said in May of last year by the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Mental Health, Dr. Eileen McCants-Katz who has a Ph.D. in epidemiology and an M.D. 
Dr. Doctor, you could call her. And some of you may remember that I, I quoted her entire speech on this on the show because in those days we were putting stuff up on YouTube and YouTube banned anything about COVID. Bill, help me if I get any of this wrong. Anything about COVID that wasn't from a government source. So we said, OK, all right. Well, let me just quote verbatim the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Senate-confirmed government source, and they took it down. It's not because it was a government source. It's because they didn't like what she was saying. What was she saying? While we contain the virus, I'm quoting her, are we increasing the risk of suicide and drug overdose? overdose? Are we creating a future of substance use and addiction for children and millions of other Americans? And if we are doing those things, why have we decided collectively that this is okay? She went on. And on and on. She said something to the effect of losing someone to COVID is no worse or no better than losing someone to a drug overdose or a suicide. And that, you know, puts you in, in a moment of pause and thought. I get it. But all of a sudden, it's now fashionable to talk this way because it's a Democrat who's the U.S. Surgeon General saying these things. Does it not anger you? It should. It should anger you because one wonders if Eleanor McCants Katz's words, what I was repeating a year ago, more than a year ago, were taken seriously. Maybe more people would be alive. Kind of like with Andrew Cuomo and his policies for the aged and disabled. If people wouldn't have played politics with this stuff and said there's only one narrative, and one narrative only, tens of thousands of people would still be likely alive. It's a, it's a tragedy where politics has entered, and generations, what, I guess X and Z, X, Y, and Z, really, have decided what you can and cannot see, read about, learn, and know. Because don't you know they know better than those who have been practicing and toiling in these fields for years, years like a PhD, MD, in epidemiology and medicine. I saw, I, ha, I, 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 I was watching, you know, you know I play this game. It's not to watch the news. It's to watch what they're doing and saying and thinking. I, I was watching CBS News this morning. Not to watch the news, not to get the news, as, I, as my friend put it, not to get the news, to see what they're saying, to see how they think. And I'll, I guess along those Lincoln lines of stand with anyone who stands right when he's right, I have to tell you, there was a breath of fresh air on CBS with their, um, with their house physician uh, who they were interviewing. They interviewed their, you know, their medical expert on Omicron, the Omicron variant. And I'll tell you why he, I thought he was a breath of fresh air. He spoke clearly and he must have said, we don't know yet. In a three or four minute interview, he must have said, we don't know yet, 10 or 12 times. So much so that the, um, the host interviewing him, I'm blanking on her name, but it's okay. The host interviewing him said, I hate it when you say we don't know. He said, I'm trying to be honest. And I thought, what? A refreshing answer that would have been for a year and a half from people like Anthony Fauci. Or even today, 
the head of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. But the certainty with which they engaged in these things and the rapidity in which they engaged in these things and the censorship and shaming of those who raised questions about these things are all bearing their fruit now. Another way of saying that is coming to fruition. They're bearing fruit and coming to fruition. And it gets to kind of a larger question I've had. We can do this on crime, too. I'll do it in a little bit. But it comes to an interesting question about accountability. Is this okay with people? Is it okay that now that a U.S. Surgeon General under a Democratic administration says it, after, by the way, almost going on two years of loss now, approaching, knocking on the door of two years of this thing, and he's all of a sudden... You have Democrats now saying it. It makes it newsworthy. It makes it okay to talk about. It makes it past the arm and pen of the censor. Talk about playing politics with the virus. Talk about playing politics with people's lives. You can do this with crime, too. But before I get to that, let me read you another poll. Isolation, anxiety, uncertainty. I'm reading you from the AP. Isolation, anxiety, uncertainty. The stresses of the coronavirus pandemic have taken a toll on Americans of all ages. But a new poll finds that teens and young adults have faced some of the heaviest struggles if they come, as they come of age during a time of extreme turmoil. Think about that phrase, extreme turmoil. Is that what you want your... Society living in, is that what you want your children raised in? Overall, more than a third of Americans aged 13 to 56 cite the pandemic as a major source of stress, and many say it has made parts of their lives harder. When it comes to education, friendships, and dating, the disruption has had a pronounced impact amongst Generation Z, ages 13 to 24. Almost 50% said the pandemic has made it harder to pursue their education, careers, and then it goes through other things that life has been made harder on them in their social, emotional, and mental health. Is there ever going to be any accountability on this? I don't know what it would look like except deep shaming and never allowing these people to be in power again. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If it's 34 past the hour, it's time for our friend John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is the website and his radio show heard every Saturday morning here at 7 a.m., the Word on Wealth. Hi, John. Hey, how's it going? I'm Big day today for, for those beetle lovers out there. Tell me why. Well, this is the day John Lennon was shot. Oh. 1980, December wow. 8th. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. I remember as a kid, this, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we, there was a memorial on radio, right. and everyone was, everyone, a lot of people were tuned to the radio station. And I, I remember saying to my mom, Isn't this really something? You know what she said? God love her. She was so cynical. She said, Yeah, I'm just waiting for the moment of silence. Oh, boy. Yeah, she was not a fan. Not a fan. (laughs) Not a fan. Well, you know, it's interesting. He was only 40 years old. 
at the time. So yeah, that is interesting. You, you know, think of him as much older. Yeah, I, I really did because, of course, we were younger. So at the time, we we thought they were much older, but not the case. Yeah, so. same with Elvis Presley, right? Yes. everyone thinks he was really old, mm-hmm. uh, or at least a lot older. Then uh, when he died, I think mm-hmm. he was something like uh, 43, uh, or maybe not even quite, something right. very much right. younger than we imagine. Mm-hmm. John, thanks for that, yeah. uh, for that memory. I, um, I, w- I wanted to ask you about how seriously you think we in culture and economy and you and your uh, uh, profession uh, should take this new proposal I'm reading about to expand the government fleet of uh, electric vehicles and trying to make the government carbon neutral. You saw this, right? He's, yes. He's signing mm-hmm. an executive order, Yes, something uh, something along the lines of ordering the federal fleet uh, uh, to be electrical, electrically uh, vehicular. Electrified. Yeah, yeah electrified. <laughs> Thank you. Elect or electrified. You want to come here and do this? All right, Maybe you electrocuted, do it. electrocuted, yeah. <laughs> All right, yes. Thank you. Go ahead. What's your thought on this? Well, I mean, this is certainly... Uh, Something that the administration has not hidden from us. They've yep. been talking about it and uh, mentioned. There was a mention back a while ago about them uh, purchasing, you know, so many hundred thousand or whatever it was uh, vehicles, right. electric vehicles. And now they're talking about this executive order that the president was supposed to be signing today, mm-hmm. uh, which their goal is is to slash. Uh, it says the carbon emissions by sixty five percent by yep. twenty thirty. Yeah. And become carbon neutral by 2050. So it's a pretty bold uh, plan. And they're talking about spending, again, a lot of money in order to do this. Because they've got to bring all of these buildings, all of the the fleet of vehicles, whether it's cars, trucks, uh, plus create a grid to be able to service and charge all of these vehicles. Uh, It's going to be a major undertaking. How serious is it? Well, they're serious about it, at least what they're they're doing, the steps they're taking right now. Uh, I don't know how uh, if they are going to be able to push this to the limits and make it make it uh, make it so, as uh, Captain Picard would say. Yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see, um, you know, what what steps they take once they sign this bill into uh into law. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder about it, too. I, and it's going to be interesting which industries are going to be more favored over which others, mm-hmm. uh, which car automakers are going to be more favored over others. Right. You know, along with the plan that every plant that the government is giving money to has to be uh, unionized. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to be another set of picking winners and losers. But I don't know, honestly, John. Uh, with this kind of spending that we're ever going to get a handle on the problem that really is being caused here, which is the price that people can no longer afford to live on what they're making with this inflation, because it is this kind of spending, it seems to me, that is driving it. Yeah. And this is, of course, uh, you know, again, those those fortunate individuals that are the higher net worth individuals, higher income earners. Yes. You know, they still don't like to see these prices rising. But they they can still they can afford. handle it. They could yeah. still afford these things. Yeah. So what this is really doing, and we've heard it over and over again, is it's really hurting the lower income individuals, and these are the uh, uh, people that the current politicians in in office are saying that they're there to protect. Yeah. Uh, but the, certainly the policies that they're creating are not uh, doing that. They're they're certainly hurting those individuals, making it harder and harder for them to be able to support their families, to be able to. Maybe uh, get good medical attention as well as uh, even eat healthy. Yeah. I mean, there are yeah. things out there, you know, that people are, are, are suffering because of these higher uh, rates, because of the higher uh, cost of just about everything. 
And they've got that's what they really should be focusing on right now, not talking about all these other spending bills. Nicely put, John. I appreciate it. We were te- we teased in when I was younger the, about things called Mer- people call we, we used to call Mercedes Marxists or Cadillac communists. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not an outlier now. That yeah. that is your your socialists and Marxists are now the only ones who can afford their policies. Yeah. You don't have to comment on nope. that. Yep. I'll let you say yep. what you have to say. Though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finra Tipping, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. And we certainly will be some picking some winners and losers out there. There's no question about it, Seth. John Dombrowski, yep. GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Bless you, sir. Thank you. Talk soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If it's Wednesday, we check in with Brett Johnson of Snell & Wilmer. He is our Robert Jackson Scholar in Constitutional Studies. Happy Wednesday, Brett. How are you, sir? Good, good, Seth. Thanks for having me. You betcha, always. We love having you. Um, so the thing that's going around now and people are kind of beginning, people who aren't in the business are kind of beginning to wake up to it, is this talk of redistricting. A lot of people are saying, why do we have to do this? I like the representative I have. A lot of people are saying, the way it's going, I don't know if I'm going to like the representative I have. We're going through it, but everyone's going through it. Give us an overview of what's going on and what is this business about Texas being suited to? Take it away. Sure. No, thank you, Seth. And and just so everybody knows, in the United States Constitution, um, one vote, um, everybody has an equal equal vote, and each congressional district has to have an equal population. So every 10 years we have the census, and that triggers then the redistribution of the political lines, the election lines, both at the, the um, congressional level as well as usually the legislative district level, too, because those are going to be changing. So in this case, um, in Arizona's case, people's house, state legislature, uh State, state House, state Senate, yeah, as well state. as federal, right? Mm-hmm. As as well as right. well as federal, right. and and of course because of that census uh, review, some people, uh, some states got extra seats, other states lost extra seats, yeah. and so now you're you're trying to manipulate the lines to make a determination. Now historically. Um, the way that this was done, and in many states it still is, was to actually protect incumbents. There was a state interest in believing that um, incumbency, that having that experience, that history of, of dealing with state issues was actually a good thing. Um, in the state of Arizona, uh, back in the year 2000, that, that was taken away, and we, we create, Arizona cre- created the Independent Redistricting Commission. And now several other states have followed Arizona's uh, role, either as an advisory commission to the legislature, Legislature, which traditionally made the maps, or um, like Arizona, and actually drawing the maps directly. And then some states is that if the legislature or the commission can't get it done by a certain time, it gets kicked to that state's Supreme Court. So that's how the redistricting process works. Now the bottom line is this is a political process. Let's not let's not all fool ourselves that there is some um, other other way of of doing this. And obviously in Arizona, though, they try their best to take politics out of it and put six specific criteria in place um, that drives the map um, the mapping process but you cannot take into account where where an incumbent lives in fact the first step of the process is, is you wipe out all of the other political lines of what existed and you start brand new yeah. and you can't you can't necessarily rely back on yeah, you asked about Texas. Yeah, like the Texas happened. thing. Texas, Texas is always issue. in the news on this, right? Yeah, Seemingly. you know, in, in, 
Yeah, and Texas likes to push the envelope, and, and um, as, as, as it should. You know, if you don't have states kind of pushing some of these issues and, and especially back on some um, federal encroachment, who's going to do it? So Texas is definitely out there doing it. Well, if you, you might, many of you might know Texas picked up two seats. Arizona didn't pick up any. We all expected that we would pick up one, but Texas picked up two. Um, a big portion of that I'll give Department of Justice credit. It is true that the reason why uh, Texas's population did increase so significantly was because of the Latino population. It, mm-hmm. it just was. Mm-hmm. However, neither of the two districts went to a basically a Latino majority district. And ah. That's one thing the Department uh-huh. of Justice has a big concern, uh-huh. that if you had such a big population growth in Latinos, why didn't they get another district? Mm-hmm. And in fact, what Texas did is that they diluted um, uh, another district. Now, real quick, um, most states, not a lot of states, not most states, but a lot of states, Arizona and Texas, included used to be governed by what's called Section 5, right. where we had to go to Department of Justice and get permission for our maps. And then if you, what's called retrogress, if you didn't give the Latinos or in the South, the African-American communities, the districts that, that um, would allow them the opportunity to elect candidates of choice, the Department of Justice would usually reject your maps. So in this context, where Texas is kind of going, uh, you know, unwinding some of those districts. The only avenue for Department of Justice was Section 2. Now, if, you're, if your listeners were, were paying attention, Section 2 should be a, a memorable because there's a case at the Supreme Court this last year called Burnovich versus Hobbs. It's an Arizona-based case, and it dealt specifically with Section 2. So just as in many cases, we talked about abortion last week, are these cases being set up by the states to get in front of the Supreme Court and quite honestly um, roll back some of the the rulings from previous previous Supreme Courts? So that's that's reading the tea leaves. Thank you for that, and thank you for that outline. We have – we've we've gotten used to the phraseology, and of course people would probably want to update it, but the phraseology of the time in the 60s, I think it came down in the 60s, 64, maybe a case, one man one vote. Reynolds, maybe? Was it the Reynolds case? I could be wrong. I haven't looked at this in a while. But it sounds, by the way, you're detailing it, Brett, is that really what the Departments of Justice have been interested in, and not just now, but for years, isn't really just one person, one vote, but districts that actually cover populations based on ethnicity. Or am I overreading what you're saying? No, that's exactly right. Because they were afraid of something called – you used the word dilution. Dilution. I remember that that phrase. Minority vote dilution was a popular phrase once upon a time. Section 2 is minority vote dilution, i.e. we're taking away uh, two – we usually call minority-majority districts, right? right? Under Section 5, which is no longer around, it was called retrogression. Um, However, you know, the current – some of the justices that are on current Supreme Court, they have really been pushing that, hey, you better have very strong reasons to be – drawing political maps based off of race, whatever that race is, white, Latino, African-American, you better have very, very good reasons, the VRA being one of them. But that might not necessarily be the end-all, be-all. And so this Supreme Court, you got to watch out for that, because if, you, if you're if you almost purely on race reasons without some of the other reasons, and let me give you, your listeners, some of those reasons. I was just going to ask, thanks, Com- yeah, please. Yeah, com- compact districts, right? I yep. mean, basically, can you draw almost a square around it? Is it continuous? This is not Armenia. You can't have you know half of CD9 in the northwest and the half of CD9 um, in the in the south uh, southeast and not touching each other. Also, things about geographical uh, features. What are city boundaries, county boundaries, and most importantly, and a lot of people 
people may have heard this, especially here in Arizona, is communities of interest. Uh. Now, that's in the eye of the beholder, but communities of interest, the easy one here, urban versus rural. Yeah. Can, yeah. can you can you pull a rural district from the east of uh, the state all the way into Phoenix, yeah. and then that means Phoenix dominates some yeah. farmers on the east side? Yeah. No, not necessarily. So those are traditional redistricting, but this is really what I want to instruct your listeners to is is to make sure they understand this is going to have a drastic impact on their ability to elect leaders for the next 10 years. And so my recommendation is become educated on it and and actually comment on it. What are your communities of interest? Where are you? Where do you want to be? Who do you want to be with? Those types of things. And it's interesting, you know, there's a whole bunch of communities of interest going from the mining folks to the Native Americans to the rural, to the river. You know, we have the Colorado River and then the border district. So, it's it's an interesting environment. Well, you know, you've, you, you you people tend to gla- have their eyes glaze over when these discussions come up. But you have made it under you have made it interesting, and uh, okay. I've always found it interesting because I mean, every kid learns or they used to. I don't know. Do your kids still learn about gerrymandering? I mean, this is work, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's yeah, still... <laughs> the old the old salamander. Yeah, and, yeah and, the old. And <laughs> you, look at, you look at the Texas maps. You see a nice little salamander. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Brett, Brett Johnson, you are great. You always provide clarity. Thank you, sir. Our Robert Jackson, visiting scholar in constitutional studies from the law firm of Snell and Wilmer. That's a great firm here based in Phoenix, of course, in many other states. Brett Johnson, thank you, sir. Thank you, Seth. Until next week, you betcha. Bless you and Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. I was uh, just talking to my producer, Bill, on on the break. We're going to have... but uh, uh, Unger Sargon on with us. She's the deputy editor of Newsweek, who um, who uh, wrote wrote that column I was mentioning in in my monologue about why is it the Cuomos could get away pretty much scot free and with lots of laughter and joking between the two of them on CNN. I think the brothers Cuomo were on CNN together a dozen times last year. Uh, why, why, why is that okay? But once the sexual harassment allegations came, they were no longer, uh, they were no longer to, um, they were no longer to be able to maintain or obtain their office or their position. In the case of Andrew Office, in the in the case of uh, CNN, obviously his job, and and it's an interesting question about what the society considers more important what it considers the more valuable and it's a, if you if you drill down into it it becomes actually quite controversial the last time i remember that discussion and it was smothered pretty quickly because it gets uncomfortable quickly was over the oj simpson case for those people count me among them who thought and by all evidence to within as certain as one can get knew O.J. Simpson was the guilty party. Um, the jury, the jurors engaged in what was called jury nullification. And the Johnny Cochran legal strategy was to show that the L.A. police force was uh, saturated by, if not, if not entirely enveloped by by racism which when 
that juror gave O.J. Simpson the black power fist upon his exoneration, um, a few people were saying, so is racism now worse than murder? Never mind double homicide, if not murder homicide, a double homicide. And what is it we're saying here? Of course, of course, of course, there was a revolution in police work after that that very well probably needed to take place in the wake of Daryl Gates's tenure as the L.A. police chief. But it is a really important question, and it goes to a little bit about what Brett Johnson was talking about, doesn't it, when we think about redrawing racial uh, congressional lines along, raci- along racial interests. What does one man, one vote mean? Why can't we just have people represented equally because they're people? Why do we have to engage in these games that cover certain aspects at bottom, the theory of which at bottom translates into only one thing, that race and ideology or political preference and position are tied to one another? You know this is a big theme of mine. I abhor it. We should have. What we went to war in December about in 1941 was about just that. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.